Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Brothers and sisters, welcome to today's chapter of the Big Picture Show here live on Radio Islam International. And a special welcome to our listeners of Radio Al Ansar in Durban and Peter Maddensburg, as well as those who are listening online. Well, dear listeners, uh, before I proceed, I want you to listen to this important 90 second clip. Yes, I say it's important because. Listen to it carefully, and then I'll talk about it after that. Yesterday, I began to hear reports of people who have actually starved to death in Gaza. I asked the head of the World Food Program, former American Ambassador Cindy McCain, about these reports. I sent her a note asking about reports that some children have now crossed the awful threshold from being on the verge of starvation to dying of starvation. She wrote back, and I quote, this is true. We are unable to get in enough food to keep people from the brink. Famine is imminent. I wish I had better news, end quote. Madam President, I want that to sink in. Kids in Gaza are now dying from the deliberate withholding of food. In addition to the horror of that news, one other thing is true. That is a war crime. It is a textbook war crime. And that makes those who orchestrate it war criminals. President Biden must take action in response to what is happening. First and foremost, the president must demand that the Netanyahu government immediately allow more food and water and other life-saving supplies into Gaza and make sure it reaches the children and other people who are starving, including in the north. Well, dear listeners, you've heard that clip. I'm trying to get more of what was said. Unfortunately, that's all I came across. I came across it this morning on Facebook while preparing for the show. But what took me back about this clip was the person who's talking, yes, it's an American politician. And not just an American politician, it's a U.S. Senator. U.S. Senator Chris Van Hollen, as in Holland, Holland, right? So Chris Van Hollen, who is a U.S. Senator since January 2017 for the state of Maryland, which is uh, home to the famous uh, big city Baltimore, which is very close to Washington, D.C. So a man who has been in the corridors of power, who has been a uh, lead member of the Democratic Party, whether it was on the Senatorial Campaign Committee or the House Democratic Assistance to the Leadership under Nancy Pelosi, and uh, even serving before on the House of Representatives, which is the Congress. Uh, so this is Chris Van Hollen, a, a member of Joe Biden's party. And he's speaking out. That is what's interesting. He's speaking out. Yes, it's uh, one would say it's a little too late. It is too late. But the very fact that he's speaking out says something. Because all along, in the American corridors of power between Congress and the Senate, only you've been hearing about uh, the non-white, if I may put it in inverted commas, uh, politicians, especially those that are Muslim, Latino, like you've got... Ilhan Umar, Rashida Tlaib, you've got Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, etc. Those are the ones that have been speaking out. Now you've got 
a senator by the name of Chris Van Holland speaking out that says something. And then he referred to Cindy McCain. Do you know who Cindy McCain? Well, she's the wife of the late American maverick politician, Warhawk John McCain. Yes, she's the widow of John McCain. She is, has been in the corridors of power. John McCain has been most of his life in the corridors of power, right? And also one known to uh, be involved like uh, in, into king-making, king-breaking along the lines of Henry Kissinger, but obviously not to his age, not to his level. Henry Kissinger was something else. He was, he was, he was devil in the human skin, right? So, and she's also saying this is true. So that means that the American politicians know exactly what is happening out there in Gaza. They know what is happening. Unfortunately, they are held to ransom by the most powerful lobby on earth, which is the Israeli lobby, which is especially APAC, the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee. Now, just to give you a bit of background, just to tell you about who is, um, of who's Chris Von Helen. And there's very interesting pastry. Well, you won't know this, but Chris Van Holland was born in Karachi, Pakistan. Yes. Uh, the eldest of three children of American parents, Edith, Eliza, Franceworth, and Chris Van Holland. His father was a foreign service officer who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State that, uh, for Near Eastern Affairs, meaning uh, like a Deputy Foreign Minister for Near Eastern Affairs for that part of the subcontinent, for that part of the Asian region or the Eastern region. And then he was American ambassador to Sri Lanka and Maldives between, in the 70s. Chris uh, Van Holland's mother worked for the CIA and the State Department, where she served as the chief of intelligence bureau for South Asia. Right, Chris Van Holland spent part of his early life in Pakistan, Turkey, India, and Sri Lanka. He returned to America for his junior year of high school, and uh, the rest is history. That's what it's about. But that's what I found very amazing that. The American politicians know what is happening that is wrong. And you heard it from himself. It's a war crime. What's happening currently is a war crime. This is a pity that I can't get the full clip, but I'm trying very hard to get it. And I'm going to post this on Facebook and Twitter. It's only 90 seconds, the one that we played now. But once we get the full clip, put it on. And it'll be interesting to see what else he had to say. Anyway, going on to what is happening currently there. Right, Rafa is a bloodbath waiting to waiting to spill over. And and I, I'm sorry, dear listeners, that you have to hear it in that very crude way, but that's the reality. It's a bloodbath waiting to spill over. And sadly, the Arab despotic leaders, the leader, uh, the president of, Tur I mean, uh, you take Erdogan of Turkey with all his talk. I mean, I'm a big fan of Erdogan, but still, I'm disappointed, right? You take the Ayatollahs, the Iranian leadership, you take Nasrallah of Hezbollah, who keeps on making the most fiery of statements. Forget the corrupt leaders of Pakistan. And then, of course, you've got those who speak out from Indonesia and Malaysia who are far away, like Anwar Ibrahim and now the outgoing president of Joko uh, Widodo, right, etc. But none of them, none of the Muslim country leaders are doing anything to stop this. Sisi himself knows that it's a big problem on his hands. He knows what will happen. He is right there. He is the first one on the neighboring line. Egypt is the first one on the neighboring line. He can do everything in his power to stop it. 
but he's not doing anything. Absolutely useless. Because they're all in cahoots, in some way or the other, with Israel. To the varying levels, of course, the, at the moment, the, the, the country that takes the first, first prize for being in cahoots with the, with the Israelis are the Emiratis, then the Bahrainis, the Egyptians. It's sad, it's a sickening reality, but that's what's happening out there. So now, it's, the revelation has come about that, is, is, uh, or the question is being asked, is Egypt building a safe zone for Palestinians who are planning to escape the Israeli attack on Rafah? And this is what has been, this is what has emerged so far. So according to what I found out is that Egyptian engineering teams have begun new construction in the city of Rafah near the border of the Gaza Strip, right? Sparking concerns among residents and raising questions about the prospect of forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza into the emerging buffer zone on the Egyptian side as Israel plan, plans a ground attack on the Gaza side of Rafah. Both the Egyptian side and the Gazan sides are called Rafah, right? Which is a city split by the Rafah crossing through which aid and people flow into Gaza, but is currently closed. So people want to know next, is this confirmed? Well, the claim was first made by the Sinai Foundation for Human Rights. I'll circulate that a bit later. I've circulated on WhatsApp, but it's, we'll put it on Facebook and Twitter. So the Sinai Foundation for Human Rights came up with a short video clip Right, and published images from Monday showing it showed construction trucks and cranes working in the area and images of concrete barriers. Right? According to an unidentified source for the Sinai Foundation, right, who said that the construction work was intended to create a secured area in case of a mass exodus of Palestinians. Now, various online uh, progressive Middle Eastern uh, media outlets, especially the New Arab, which is run by uh, uh, Marwan Bishara's brother, right? Uh, Azmi Bishara. Marwan Bishara, for those of you who don't know, is the uh, Middle East leading Middle East correspondent for Al Jazeera, Christian, Arab, uh, Palestinian, right? His brother Azmi Bishara runs the New Arab, right? According to his publication, The New Arab, they were able to verify that the new works are ongoing based on satellite images obtained just very three days ago on the 14th of February in what was a previously unbuilt area just on the border with Gaza, right? Now, um, this area sits along what they call the Sher Zuwaid Rafa Road. It's about three and a half kilometers west of the border with Gaza and a few kilometers away and distinct from another buffer zone that has been there for years. Apparently, it was cleared during the Egyptian army's counterinsurgency operation against jihadist elements a few years ago. Work apparently started as early as fought, or somewhere between the 4th and 9th February this year. That was just what, over a week ago. And as of 14 February, the earthworks cover a surface area of about four square kilometers. In the map provided by the Sinai Foundation, the works are planned to cover a total surface area of 20 square kilometers. According to other sources in Northern Sinai who spoke to the New Arab and other publications, like its sister Arabic publication, Al-Arabi Al-Jadid, confirmed a claim by the Sinai Foundation that the works have been carried out by, the con by contractors close to the Egyptian government, right? One of them is known as the Abna Sinai, owned by Ibrahim Al-Argani, was commissioned by the army. 
and we all know what control the army has in Egypt. So the construction company has been clearing demolished houses of local Sinai residents in Rafah who had been displaced during the country's anti-ISIS operations. Right? Argani is known for having strong ties with the regime, employing thousands of servicemen in recent years. The sources said Egyptian military leaders have been visiting Rafah frequently in, day, in recent days with aerial surveys using army helicopters. The images and claims were also confirmed by various Western news agencies and media, including Reuters, Wall Street Journal, but a video published by the foundation could not be confirmed in whole. That's the uh, video I was mentioning earlier on. Right? There are four sources who told the Reuters news agency that Egypt is preparing an area at the Gaza border which could accommodate Palestinians in case an Israeli offensive into Rafah prompts an exodus or a mass exodus across the frontier, describing it as a contingency move by Cairo. The sources said Egypt had begun preparing a desert area with some basic facilities which could be used to shelter Palestinians. But then the Wall Street Journal also quoted another anonymous Egyptian, or, or, sorry, the Wall Street Journal quoted a few anonymous Egyptian officials who described that the 20 square kilometer area is a walled enclosure being built in the area that could accommodate only over 100,000 people. And there's over a million people amassed on the Rafa border. So officially, Egypt is denying such or making such preparations. And Israel says it has no intention of deporting Palestinians from Gaza. Right? So comes to the next very important question. Does this mean an Israeli attack on Rafa is imminent? Well, over 85% of Gaza's population of 2.3 million have become, uh, sorry, have been displaced from their homes since October 7th, when Israel started the offensive. Also claiming the lives so far sitting at about 29,000 and injuries over 68,000. Right? As many as 1.5 million of them could be sheltering in Rafah. I said a million, but it's 1.5 million. And they fled to other areas of Gaza as well, with nowhere safe to go. So these parts of an Egyptian buffer zone intended to receive intended to receive part of the displaced population an ominous sign that at the very least Cairo is expecting an Israeli ground attack to happen even as most countries of the world, including the United States, are warning against it. Egypt has repeatedly raised the alarm over the possibility that Israel's Gaza offensive could displace Palestinians into Sinai something Cairo says would be completely unacceptable. Right? Now, when they say unacceptable, so if it's unacceptable, make it known or show the Israelis how unacceptable it is. Right? Apparently, these warnings have been echoed by the other Arab states. Right? Of course, Jordan has been one of the most vocal, right? Because they border the West Bank. Right? And they have taken many Palestinians displaced in 1948, as well as after the 1967 war, right? When Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza. So can you see a repeat here, like what some Israeli war hawks and right-wing nutheads have said that this is another Nakba? So like we saw what's happening in Jordan after 1948, after 1967, right? Uh, you see it now after the Assad regime barbarically uh, tormented the people of Syria and sent them fleeing to Turkey in the north. And all those people amassed along the Turkish border, their refugee camps, also in Jordan, along the along the western part of Jordan, right? So at the end of the day, what is being created here, as much as Egypt denies it, is a 
long-lasting refugee camp in one of the most harsh terrains in the world and a real harsh terrain if one has to see a uh, go on to youtube and if you look at videos on on rafa and if you look at this one by the sinai foundation for human rights you'd be shocked at what terrain this is so Israel has said it will mount an offensive to take on Hamas's last bastion because that's what Israel claims that there's a last bastion in Rafah amongst the, the people, right? Okay. And they said that its army is drawing up a plan to evacuate civilians from Rafah to other parts of the Gaza Strip. But Israel denies it is attempting to push Palestinians into Sinai. Yet ministers and officials have publicly supported the voluntary resettlement of Palestinians from Gaza. Then Israel went on to say that it will coordinate with Egypt on Palestinian refugees and will find a way not to not harm Egypt's interests, according to Israel's foreign minister, Israel Katz, which said that yesterday, yeah, that they will coordinate. He said, uh, yeah, Katz apparently spoke on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference and said, the state of Israel will have to deal with Rafah because we can't just leave Hamas there. When asked where refugees in Rafah would go, he suggested Gaza's second city, Khan Yunus, but said that Israel will coordinate with Egypt to ensure Cairo's interests were not harmed. We will coordinate with Egypt, he said. According to X, Sinai for Human Rights put out a tweet saying Egypt to create a gated high security area in the reception of Palestinian refugees from Gaza. Right, The Sinai Foundation obtained... Um, sorry, I just lost this thing. Anyway, it's related to that clip I spoke about early on. Just trying to get this uh, this tweet popping up here. I lost it on my phone. Yes. Okay, there's it here. So the Sinai Foundation obtained information through a relevant source. Now, this is coming directly from Sinai for Human Rights, right? So the Sinai Foundation obtained inform important information through a relevant source that indicates that the construction work currently taking place in Eastern Sinai is intended to create a high security gated and isolated area near the borders with Gaza Strip in preparation for the reception of Palestinian refugees in the case of the mass exodus of the citizens of the Gaza Strip. The foundation interviewed two local contractors who said that local construction companies have been commissioned this construction work by Ibrahim Al-Arjani, again a close businessman to the authorities, Abna Sinai, Sinai for construction building, who had been directly assigned uh, the commission by the commission through the Egyptian Armed Forces Engineering Authority. The construction work is intended to build a gated area surrounded by seven meter high walls after the removal of the rubble of the houses of the indigenous people of Rafa who were displaced forcibly and their houses demolished during the war against terrorism against ISIS. The area is expected to be leveled and ready no more than 10 days. They said this information has been circulated in closed circles to avoid publication, noting that the work is being done under supervision of the Egyptian Armed Forces Engineering Authority under heavy security presence. The Sinai Foundation published a report two days ago with exclusive images showing the Egyptian authorities starting rapid construction on the border area of Eastern Sinai. Additionally, this morning, the institution's team observed the building of a cement wall of seven meters in height starting at a point of cause, QOZ, Rad village, south of Rafa city, directed towards the Mediterranean Sea, the north, parallel to the border with the Gaza Strip. In an interview with Mr. Mohammed Sabri, a researcher specializing in Sinai and Egyptian security, said that the construction work seen in Sinai 
along the border of Gaza, the erection of a reinforced security perimeter around the specified and open stretch of land are serious signals that Egypt could be preparing to accept and allow the displacement of the people of Gaza into Sinai in coordination with Israel and the United States. The construction works that started early on Monday, the 12th of February, that was just five days ago, six days ago, right, have its eastern borders line between a point southern uh, of the Rafa border crossing and another southern of the Kerem Shalom border crossing, while its western borders lie between Khoz Abu Rad village and El Masura village. Military intelligence officers are present as well as the Fursan al Haytham militia that stems from the Sinai tribal coalition headed by businessman Ibrahim al-Ajani near the Khoz Abu Rad area south of the city of Rafa along with construction tools, bulldozers, and local contractors. Imagine, people. This is, this, is, this is what you call a collaboration. There's nothing else. This is a collaboration. I mean, there's, there's more to this, but obviously time does not permit to, to go into every detail. But this is the reality of what we are facing. I just want to see, I have a guest coming on air, and I want to just see if he's available. Um, and uh, we want to cross over to him. Right. Um, okay. He's on air. He's no stranger to the airwaves. Right. He's also no stranger to the media circles, because uh, last week I had him on air for for a good twenty minutes or plus. We have uh, the member of parliament for the National Freedom Party, the NFP, brother Ahmad Manzoor Sheikh Imam, on air. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, Brother Manzur, I must, uh, Ahmad Manzur, I must caution you. You cannot uh, hijack the airspace of my show. You know? Last week, Saturday, again today, I don't know if this is going to carry on in perpetuity. But the reason why I have to have put you on air today is because just a few days ago, you gave South Africa, uh, South Africans, uh, or should I say, not South Africans, you gave the DA a Valentine's present by lashing out at them, right, in Parliament. In fact, it meant SAFM News. And it was fiery. It was for five minutes you took the podium and you hit out. Please, for the benefit of the listeners, tell us what it was about and give us a background as to why you brought it up then. Jazakallah, my brother. And assalamu alaikum to all our listeners out there. Well, you know, there are two things. There are two things that we have to be concerned about in the country. One is the state of the economy and the country as a whole. And more importantly, what direction is the country moving in? Now, we've heard the State of the Nation addressed by the President, which I believe was more election campaigning than a State of the Nation address. President did come back and do some level of damage control, not very convincing though. And yes, indeed, I think he was correct. There are great successes in the country, but equally there are serious challenges and failures in the country. But the failures in the country together with a Zionist attempt to want to overthrow the regime in this country, particularly with the stance that we have taken on the, on the Russia-Ukraine issue, the stance we have taken on the Palestinian cause, rightfully so, means that we are treading on very thin ice. It simply means that we are on dangerous ground. Now, I can tell you no more hundreds of millions, billions of rands are now pouring into this election to want to remove the ANC to the extent that the ANC themselves are so badly divided that they have split their votes between the ANC and the MK, posing a serious risk, not only to the country, but to the freedom of our religion and our being. 
And unless we put measures in place to mitigate against that and protect our own interests, we're going to run into trouble. Now, let's look at what is going on in the Western Cape for that matter. You can see the draconian laws that are coming in place where there's no more freedom of movement, there's no more freedom of speech. They're passing laws overnight to restrict our people as far as what you can display, what you can say, what kind of congregations you can have. So you can see we are now going back to the days of apartheid or more importantly, going to the Zionist way of life, which means anything that's not Zionist is as far as they could have substandard, like they have said before, Africans are barbaric, subhuman, and this is the direction it's moving into. Now, more importantly, if you look what's happening in the Western Cape, and that is where I have a serious problem. You can look at for years, they have been selling the land in the Western Cape to foreign nationals. That's one of the points. Now, secondly, and more importantly, there are serious allegations that, that to such an extent, that it appears that the Democratic Alliance is using the assets in the Western Cape, okay, and pledging in terms of receiving funding and things. Now, some of them are saying this is not entirely true, but let's go back into the history and look at what is happening into the Western Cape. Look at the Jewish communities that are moving into the Western Cape. Look at the attempt of talking about an independent state right now, together with the draconian laws that are being put in place to restrict the movement and things of our people in the Western Cape. Then, more importantly, you look at the quality of life of the most vulnerable, that is the colored, the African com community, and most importantly, the rightful heirs to the land and the assets and the wealth of this country, the Khoi and San First Indigenous Nation. Now, I can tell you firsthand, I've attempted, I visited a community a week ago, and I was shocked to what I found. I saw slips of rental slips where the white community were paying much lower rentals than the colored and black counterparts. I was actually shocked. I found that white members of the community and a three-bedroom and four-bedroom with one person occupying, but in the colored community, you're giving them, you, you, you are giving them a two-bedroom and a three-bedroom, and in one instance, there were nine people occupying the south. So why the disparity? So what is happening is this. One needs to raise the serious concerns we have of in which direction the country is moving and more importantly which direction the western cape is moving and i can tell you they cannot defend what i am saying because if you go back and look at the, uh, at the land parcels that have been so let us not forget the jewish school in in sea point and what go into the entire area around century city that entire area is sold to people from the zionist community that are controlling that Yet you have 575,000 people in the city of Cape Town that are homeless. You're doing very little or nothing about it. That is why I say the city of Cape Town or, or the Western Cape is like two continents in one. One for the rich and affluent and the other one for the poor and vulnerable people. And that is what prompted me to raise concerns and highlight to South Africans at large the direction in which the country is going and why it is important for them to all come out and be part of the solution. This is the first time I think we are pleading with our people, my brother. You have to be part of this election and make the right decision. Otherwise, we can say goodbye to our religious freedom. We can say goodbye to our rights. I can tell you that Western Cape will become another Palestine if we don't do the right thing right now. 
Okay, I hear you, brother uh, Abu Mansur, and I, of course, those have been uh, have been concerns that going around for a long time. In fact, we saw not so long ago that the uh, the the Cape uh, chapter of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies working together with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, Cape Town uh, city uh, with the city of Cape Town Mayor's Office in welcoming uh, migrants from uh, Jewish migrants from other parts of the country. And elsewhere in the world, obviously, won't mention Israel directly, but we all know what they're talking about, into into the Western Cape. And this is more particular so since October 7. Um, uh, because we know for the fact that a lot of uh, settlers and, and whoever in Israel have been running away because they are obviously, number one, being cowards, scared of war, yet they encourage war, but they are running away and looking for so-called safe havens. So based on that, but what was a bit disturbing is that we noticed how the uh, how everything was just being laughed off when the, when the cameras were focusing on the TA bench, especially John Steenhazen, and um, as if as if uh, what you were talking was far fetched. How do you uh, plan to tackle him head on going forward on this matter? Well, two things. One thing I can say. Well, from next week we'll be having regular debates on, on a daily basis, and I will highlight in every sector when you're talking about housing. I will prove to the South Africans and the people at large in the Western Cape where and how much of a problem the communities in the Western Cape have. When you talk about international relations, I'll do exactly the same thing. If you talk about corruption, I will show you firsthand how much of corruption exists there. You know, you talk about the crime. I've just, I, you know, I was in last night at the Police Excellence Award in, in, in uh, Gallagher Estate, and I can tell you the crime stats was released. And if you look at the crime stats, the John Stearnason was bragging in the state of the nation that, uh, or particularly, I think it was the Premier, Alan Winder, that was also bragging about the reduction in the murder. No, it's not true. The murder rate has now increased in the Western Cape. It has not decreased this time. It has, in the last quarter, it increased. And, and I can tell you, they talk about the number of learners in school. If they go back and do the homework, the only reason they think learners are in school because a large percentage of the children have never seen the inside of a school. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve-year-old children on the streets go any time of the day and see during school hours the number of children that are there. Why is it the Western Cape has got so much of social uh, 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 distress amongst our people? Why is it in the Western Cape you're having so many cases of rapes and indecent assault? Why are you having such a serious alcohol problem, which is the alcohol city of the country? Why are you having such a high levels of diabetes? City of Cape Town, again, diabetes capital of the country. You know, you look at the living conditions. Go into Nyanga, Langas, Crossroads. Go into the Cape Flats and look at the living conditions of our people. Have you improved their lives? No. What you are doing no. is spending all your resources on the affluent areas, but very limited when it comes to, to the poorest of the poor area. Now, that is the, how they conduct themselves. So don't be surprised when they laugh it off because it shows you how little respect that they have for the people in their communities. You're selling of land to foreign nationals, but 575,000 people are waiting for homes there. I met people that are 28, 30 years old, 30 years on the waiting list. Now I ask you one simple question, my brother. What stops a government, a local government like the city of Cape Town, identify the land that's available in that city and identify which you have a database of all the people who have no home? and give each South African family, even a single parent, 
a subdivided and give them a piece of land which they can call home and give them the ticket. Why are you not giving it? Because when you give it to the people, they don't need you. You want them to be vulnerable and come like beggars to you. That is what it is. But yet you can sell off large parts or tracts of this land to foreign nationals. Do you know an ordinary person, it's very hard for them to buy a house in the Western Cape. If you look at what the foreign investors are doing with the pricing of housing in the Western Cape, it's almost impossible. Sir, it's impossible to even correct. rent a house. Exactly. In fact, uh, you, it's, it's scary because when you look at, uh, at, at, at rentals, even in, 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 even in your Cape Flat areas, which are not as well developed or nowhere near the developed status of the affluent areas, and they paint ridiculous renders. So yes, you are correct. Anyway, dear Brother Ahmed Masood, Jazakallah for that insight, and we'll catch up with you on another time. And all the best in handling. Well, dear listeners, you've heard it there from Brother uh, Ahmad Manzoor Sheikh Imam uh, about his, uh, as to the background, as to origins of his uh, fiery uh, five-minute speech which he gave on, uh, in Parliament on uh, Wednesday, the 14th of February. And, um, well, it's a serious concern that we have. And, uh, uh, I mean, there's obviously this, this talk of the Republic of the Western Cape, uh, it it cannot happen. We cannot allow any province in this country or any part of this country to break away. And um, that's left up to the, the people of that area to vote responsibly uh, when it comes to election day this year. Moving on to some um, news. Uh, well, obviously, we're staying with Palestine, but uh, I'll come back to it in a short while. Uh, focusing on other matters, uh, Pakistan had its elections uh, last week, it started on Friday, I think, or Thursday. And um, when the results coming in, and this election has been termed a win for the people and a blow to the establishment. So apparently that the, the military of Pakistan did everything in its power to extinguish popular support for Imran Khan and his party, the PTI, right? But the Pakistani people voted in defiance, right? and there's why. So what we've seen in the last few years, especially since April two, 2000 and, uh, 2022, right? so that's in the past two years, that the Pakistan's military camped down may have been successful in keeping the Pakistani public out of the streets, but it only strengthened their resolve to answer back with their votes. Now, the much talked about tsunami of followers of uh, jailed XPM, or should we say jailed leader Imran Khan, because that's what I, I wouldn't say XPM, I would say he's a jail leader, right? A selfless jail leader, Imran Khan, finally arrived to signal the beginning of the end of military interference and dynastic politics. Who are the dynastic politics? It's You've got the Nawaz Sharif, so the Sharif clan, and you've got the Bhutto Zaddari clan. Okay, so those are the two dynastic uh, political uh, powers, and of course the military. So in the last two years, Right, we know that the PTI, which is known as Pakistan Tehrik Insaf, Insaf, uh, right, which is Imran Khan's party, enjoyed widespread support from the country's youth and witnessed a full wrath and might of state machinery from kidnapping, illegal arrests of PTI members and workers to tear gassing, beating up protesters, and even murder. So after the protests of 9th May in last year. Yeah, that was in 2023. That was it, right? There was little hope remaining for PTI supporters as the crackdown intensified and party wickets fell one after the other. 
find a bit of the uh, cricket uh, terminology there, right? So the extent may vary, but Pakistan had with this unofficial military control of its politics at every turn, right? Although the state establishment has been resisted by various progressive and fringe groups through the decades, it was only after the ousting of Imran Khan that this resentment began to surface as popular public sentiment. So amidst this backlash, the establishment obviously engineered the return of three-time Prime Minister, Master Chorwan, biggest crook, or second biggest crook, depends how you want to classify it between him and Asif Ali Zadari, Nawaz Sharif, to serve as the puppet for the next term. Of course, his brother, the younger Sharif, known as Shabazz Sharif, uh, right, sorry, uh, was in charge while he was sitting in London Okay, uh, waiting for the military to make it possible for him to come back to Pakistan. So, as I was referring to the two dynastic parties, being the PPP, Pakistan's People Party, under the Bhutto family, but now under the Bhutto Zadari Alliance, right? And Pakistan Muslim League, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, right? There's two Pakistan Muslim League parties, but this one is known as the PMLN. Right, began the election campaigns by reiterating the same tired slogans and brought back all dirty tricks, including cutting mobile services and trying to confuse voters. PTI election settlement, which was a pact, was stolen and the party dismantled over mere technicalities in the intra-party -poll polls. Right, a population with 59% literacy rate would deny the simplicity of stamping on a pact and instead, independent candidates contested the elections with symbols varying from vegetables to crockery and household items. So, when you, with Imran Khan sitting in jail and the PTI no longer able to contest elections right, as a party, the Sharif brothers grew all the more confident in their guaranteed upcoming victory. In a desperate, in a desperate final attempt in the week before the elections, the courts sentenced Imran Khan to 14 years in prison for the Tosha Khanna corruption case, plus another seven years after declaring his marriage un-Islamic. Right? So the most un-Islamic people, the biggest chores, right, had used the courts to manipulate it to, to uh, basically label him, uh, Imran Khan, as this corrupt person. And what was this case, the Tosha Khanna case, all about? Well, he bought and he was buying and selling state gifts. I can understand selling state gifts. But buying state gifts, for what? So what Imran Khan felt when he was getting state gifts from other heads of states from other countries over the years, he felt it was too ex it was unnecessary for him and for the government. So he sold off those state gifts right, and took the proceeds and, and gave it away to noble social causes. In other words, giving it to the poor. So they, that was the only thing that to, they could put blame against him. And then, of course, suddenly they become grand muftis because they got the most corrupt uh, Molana Fazul Rahman under them uh, is part of their alliance, right? So under the, they got their fatwas from their own muftis to say that the manner in which he went about his marriage is un-Islamic. So out of touch with ground realities, political commentators have often claimed that PTI is nothing without Imran Khan, right? And what him along with other big electables out of the picture, the party will reach its early demise. Right? So that's how it was. The media was actually saying that there's no hope. Nothing's going to happen. Right? 
So discussions in the weeks before elections revolved around how big of a majority Nawaz Sharif's PMLN would be able to back and what Bilawal Bhutto's political future looked like while almost entirely dismissing PTI support. Now, Bilawal Bhutto is the son of the late Benazir Bhutto and Asif Ali Zadari. He doesn't go as Bilawal Zadari, he goes as Bilawal Bhutto because he's climbing the, the bandwagon and the good name of his grandfather, Sulfika Ali Bhutto, and of his, uh, obviously, his mother, notorious mother, Benazir Bhutto. So, but election day was another story altogether. PTI's mostly younger voter base, right? Mostly younger voter base. Beaten and bruised in the last two years, was waiting for an opportunity to fight back their votes with their weapons. What many failed to consider was how disillusioned the nation had become after the last two years of witnessing civil liberties eroding further and further. So the PTI already shared popular support amongst the middle class and young voters, but it was also an appealing choice for many as the only party not enjoying deep, deep state backing. The night of elections stunned the country as early results started coming in, putting a handsome majority of the PTI-backed candidates on top there was a palpable excitement in the air as everyone waited with bated breaths for final results to roll in. Cautiously, the nation of Pakistan started to imagine the unimaginable. A rare moment in Pakistan's history where the people defeated the generals at their own pre-rigged game. Right. The anticipation for change was rather short-lived. Later the same night, results suddenly stopped coming in, leading to widespread speculation and growing apprehensions. But instead of succumbing to the chaos that ensued, PTI urged their workers to rush to polling stations and collect signed and stamped copies of Form 45, which is the document telling votes from each polling station. As expected, the morning of 9 February saw a significant change in the results with many seats where PTI independent candidates were leading now suddenly won by, guess who, Nawaz Sharif's PMLN. So Khan's party has done more than just alleged rigging. Workers, along with average voters, have been collecting, telling, and digitally uploading copies of all Form 45 documents to show the discrepancies. Despite this, the PTI came out with more seats in the National Assembly than either of the two parties, which is the Pakistan People's Party and the PMLN. In almost every election in Pakistan's history, there have been allegations of rigging. The differences we are seeing today is the will and commitment of the people to fight back against all odds, something South Africa should learn from. But the military repression continues. In the days after the election, the National Democratic Movement's Mohsin Dawar was shot while he protested the election results. The area police shooting also took three lives while 12 political workers were injured. A similar incident took place in Shangla, where four PTI protesters were killed by police. These blatant attacks on civilians and political workers are telltale signs that the state is struggling to hold on to its authoritarian control. All the noise urging PTI to sit down with rival parties who colluded with the establishment for the sake of democracy and stability is disregarded months of state brutality faced by the party and its supporters. If Khan was to compromise on this in a bid to hold on to power, it would disillusion his voter base and normalize the glaring injustices of the system. So what has been happening is that the Nawaz, 
Sharif and the Zardari Bhutto alliances want to come and sit down with all these independent candidates who are allied to the PTI to basically let's let's make a deal. Let's do a power sharing deal, right? And uh, of course, if they do that, then obviously it's power first, then the people. So this election season has been unprecedented in more than one way. It fractured the myth of the establishment is untouchable as the public voted in big numbers, not only for PTI, but also against military interference in politics. It ushered a new area of politics without the overarching control of political dynasties and electables. And it is currently showing us the public's dedication of safeguarding their voters. Nawaz Sharif's Pakistan Muslim League blind faith in the establishment's power to manipulate the election in their favor has cost them dearly. Right Now Nawaz Sharif's face-saving victory speech or his famous Do You Love Me chants cannot undo what has transpired. The party's popularity took a turn for the worse during the Pakistan Muslim League and the Pakistan People's Party coalition. Right after Imran Khan was ousted, that was well back from April 2022, and forming an unpopular federal government right now may well be the last nail in the coffin. It was a disaster. You got two like mafia bosses coming together with totally def- different agendas. What do you expect? So the political landscape is currently shrouded in uncertainty. Right, according to the PTI chairman, Barrister Gohar has denied any intention of engaging with the Pakistan People's Party or the Pakistan Muslim League, while discussions between the Bhutos and the Sharifs hint towards a rival of the deeply unpopular PDM, which is the Pakistan Democratic Movement Coalition. The struggle for civilian supremacy continues, but one thing is undeniable. The 2024 elections made a notable dent in the military headquarters gates, the consequences of which could be far-reaching. Let's hope that this is the beginning of the end of Pakistan's evil military establishment and the Nawaz Sharif Zadari Puto Alliance. Jazakallah, dear listeners, that's all we have time for. Uh, uh, Jazakallah to Brother Mohammed in the studio of Lens for putting the show together. Until next week, inshallah, and for those listeners on Radio Al-Ansar, we'll commence after the 12 o'clock news. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.